0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned in a sermon that Jesus was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. When it came to teaching and preaching, In the Bible, we see that Jesus was bold. He didn't hold back any punches. Already in the Gospel, of Mark, we see that people were astonished at him. Why were they astonished at Jesus? Well, he was one that taught with authority, right? Not like the scribes. Jesus himself is God. We've already seen him rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees over and over again, calling out their hypocrisy condemning their self-righteousness, their traditions, right? Remember they had desire for signs and wonders, a sign from heaven, and he rebukes the disciples. This is bold. And then even just recently, we see Jesus rebuking Peter, even calling him Satan. Jesus was bold. He was tough. Maybe it's not the Jesus that you first think about. Yes, Jesus was compassionate. He was merciful. But when it came to the truth, Jesus gets real. He gets bold. He's blunt. And he's honest. And he preaches it as it is. And so we need to do that as well. Uh, There's a growing trend within Christianity to avoid the hard topics of Scripture, to just jump over them, to avoid them, right? Because that's not attractive to the world, Pastors are becoming more like life coaches. And this is one of the reasons here that uh, at, at our church we, we hold high the authority of the word of God and we want to preach it as it is. That's why when we take a book of the Bible, we want to walk through it verse by verse because we don't even want to be tempted to jump over the hard things. And so today we're going to see that this is one of those harder passages of scripture. The world doesn't love this. But we're going to learn that uh, God is a God of truth. God is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath as well. God is serious about sin. Well, last week we learned from verses 30 to 41 that there's no room for pride on the road of humility. Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. True discipleship is marked by humility rather than greatness, right? Now, as Jesus continues to teach his disciples, we're looking at Mark 9, verses 42 to 50 today. As Jesus continues to teach his disciples in Mark 9, verse 42 to 50, we're going to see that he's going to build off of this theme of humility. If we are truly humble as his disciples, our perspective of sin and holiness must also be very high. Our perspective of God's holiness should be really high, and our, and our perspective of sin should be much bigger than we often make it. So would you agree with me, me this morning that our perspective of sin is often far too small? And maybe even our perspective of hell is often too little. You see, a small view of sin reveals a small view of salvation. And it's the same with how we view hell as well. A small view of hell reveals a small view of our God. And so we see Jesus here continuing to train, continuing to prepare his disciples, and he's about to warn them about sin and about hell. But with the warnings, he's also instructing, instructing how they are to walk in the way of holiness, how to be a true disciple. And so following Christ means forsaking sin and fearing God. We're going to see that today in verses 42 to 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. And Lord, we know that you speak directly to us through what you have written by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're so grateful we have your word before us, that every word is true, every word is right, and that we need all of it. And so as we approach this text this morning, we pray for you to give us illumination, show us the truth by your Spirit, and convict our hearts. The topic of hell is not popular, but it is your topic And uh, we know that it is true. And so we pray that today, as we study this passage, you would make our view greater of you, that you would be greater in our hearts and our minds, and that we would understand you more. Renew our, our minds this morning, transform us into your image. We pray that you would do that by your Spirit, by your word. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. So, as a true disciple, must reject pride and pursue humility, right? forsaking sin and fearing God, the first warning that we see uh, Jesus giving his disciples here is that we need to have a right approach. A true disciple needs to have a right approach. And so we need to be careful how we influence. And so if you're looking back in the chapter before, Jesus is still holding this little child, this child that he used as an object lesson from verse 36, and he's going to continue to use him as an object lesson for his disciples. And he says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, this, he's talking about this child in his lap as an object lesson, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, this, this needy little child that's in Christ's arms represents more than just a little child. It represents his disciples. It rep- rep- represents his disciples, those who believe in him, and those who are following him. In fact, the fact that he is holding him uh, represents an object lesson of acceptance that they are his and that they, in turn, disciples, are to be accepting of other believers. We talked about that last week, just like Jesus accepts this little child. And the warning Jesus is giving in our text today is building upon the pride issue in the disciples from last week. If you remember last week, uh, in their pride, the disciples, they stopped this man from casting out a demon because they didn't think he was worthy. He wasn't one of them. He wasn't following them. And then after, they went and told Jesus about it. And what did Jesus do? He rebuked them. He said, don't stop them, in verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. So instead of stopping this man, they should be receiving him as a brother and and encouraging him all the more to do the Lord's work. You see, they stopped him because of their own pride. They were being terrible examples of what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. They were causing, as verse 42 says in our text today, one of these little ones who believe in me, his disciples, to sin. In fact, when you look at the word um, being translated sin, if you look at the original text in the Greek, it's skandalizo, which means to trip up. It means to, to cause someone to stumble, to cause somebody to fall, to tempt somebody towards shipwrecking their faith. And so as they were stopping that man from, from doing what was right in the Lord's eyes, they were negatively influencing him. They were causing him to do opposite of what the Lord's will was, to do what was wrong, to stumble and to fall into sin, And this is a serious offense in the eyes of God. So much so that Jesus says it would be better for him, anybody who's doing this, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now we don't hear many people dying a millstone death today, right? There, uh, there is some ancient records at this time when, when the Romans... Tied Jewish rebels to stones and drowned them. And so the disciples, Christ's apostles, uh, they would have known uh, these stories going around about that. They would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. Ancient millstones were large cylinder-shaped stones, and they would use them to grind grain. And they were so large and heavy that a human couldn't pull them, a a human couldn't power them. They would have to power them by some kind of livestock, like like a donkey or or some kind of cattle. But just think about that, a massive stone being tied around your neck and being thrown overboard into the sea. It was a guaranteed horrific death. You had no chance. If that happened to you, you'd go directly to the bottom, down to the darkness, drowning, and you would never resurface. You would be down there forever. That's the, that's the picture being painted here. He's basically saying to his disciples that if you cause a brother or a sister in Christ to stumble and sin, like you just did, that faithful man, it would be better that you suffer a horrible death. In fact, it's better that you were dead. Friends, God is serious about sin. We're seeing that here, and it's going to be all throughout this morning. He's serious about sin, and he's serious how we would influence one another. It's worthy of death. So as I've been thinking about this throughout the week, I think it's easy for us to point at other people, right? We can just turn on our social media and see all kinds of examples of this, our socially connected world. It doesn't take very long to find a scandalous story, even in the church, right? Abuse, neglect, neglect how some influential leaders have fallen, causing other church people, Christians, to stumble as well. It's really easy to find those stories. They're everywhere. And it's sad that they are so prevalent. It really is. But Jesus is directly speaking to his disciples here. He's looking at them in the eyes. And so by God's word, he's looking at you in the eyes. How can we apply this. How should we look at ourselves? Well, here's a few examples that I've come up with and there's plenty you can come up with uh, your own as well. Causing brothers and sisters to stumble. How about when it comes to the topic of accepting one another? You know, pursuing one another, welcoming brothers and sisters into the church family. Do we sometimes just gravitate to those people that look like us? are at the same stage of life, right, we're comfortable with them, but maybe we're not so comfortable with uh, some other people. How about for those who are married in our church? You know, a challenge for us as married people is we do gravitate to one another, married people with children, but what about singles in our church? How about the elderly? How about the sick? How about the outsiders? Do they feel left out? Or, Are they growing bitter because of the way that we're treating them in the church and even outside of our church? In other ways, how about uh, our conduct in front of others? What about the things that we joke about? The things that we find funny? Do we push the boundaries at times? What about our favorite uh, TV shows that we watch that we might even recommend to somebody else, forgetting that maybe there's some content in there that could lead a brother astray or a sister astray. How about when we talk about people, even people within our church, gossip, you know, rolling our eyes about a certain person? How about the freedoms that we have, right? The freedoms that we have with, in respect to others, right? Uh, for example, the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol, condemns drunkenness. But in our freedom there, we could also be a major stumbling stone to somebody else who struggles in that area. How about the posts that we share online that we thought was funny, but we really didn't uh, take notice of the crass language or the themes that are being shared? How about the young people who are following some of the olders who are online? How about our preferences and convictions? Are we communicating to each other? that our way is right? Are we inadvertently, or inadvertently adding to the gospel, you know, ratcheting up the requirements of the gospel, causing someone else to stumble? There's many, many examples that we could go to, but we have to ask ourselves, as we share our lives with one another, people are going to see the real you, right? They're going to see what you say, but they're going to also see what you do. We need to ask ourselves, beyond what we're professing, what are we multiplying into each other? What effect are we having in each other's lives? Because like it or not, we're going to reproduce something into each other. We want to be reproducing Christ, the gospel, but sometimes knowingly and unknowingly, we're causing someone else to be tripped up. You know, we as a church, we believe in multiplication. We believe in making disciples for the glory of God. But there's also ways that we can be negatively influencing one another. Think of my own self. I ask myself the question, what am I reproducing? Is it Christ or is it something else? How about you? You know, we're not not perfect. Of course we're not. We're going to sin, right? Until the day that we die, we are going to sin. And, and in this, also, spiritual maturity comes into play. Right? There's maturity. You know, A young Christian is going to behave maybe a little bit different than somebody who's further down the line. And we see that in the disciples here as well. They're not perfect. They have a life of sin and mistakes ahead of them. We know that. But Jesus is taking this time to point them to the truth. That we need to think more than just ourselves, and causing others to stumble grieves God. It really does. And he takes it seriously. And so you and I have to be extremely careful. In this first verse, we've got to be re- really, really careful. I'm thinking of Romans 14, 13 here. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. We want to be true, humble disciples, don't we? We want to be resisting pride, pursuing humility. And to do that, we need a right approach. We need to be careful how we influence. And so as Jesus is going to continue to build off this, this this theme of of sin and seriousness over sin, he's going to move from, from us jeopardizing each other to now endangering ourselves. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to sin we need to take a radical measure. We need to be serious with our sin. Verse 43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. That's pretty serious stuff. Now before we get into the the meat of this, on a side note, I just want you to take a look. You're probably going to notice something strange going on here if you look at the verses in your Bible. If you're following in an ESV, or an NIV, you're going to notice that verses 44 and 46 aren't there. They're missing. And if you have a NASB, a New American Standard Bible, excellent, excellent Bible, you'll notice that verse 44 and 46 are in brackets. Well, the reason that they are missing is because, as scholars have looked back to the most original transcripts of Scripture, What we see in the best original manuscripts is these verses aren't there. In fact, what scholars believe happened is that an early scribe, a copyist of Scripture, has taken it upon himself to take verse 48. If you look at verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and they have taken that verse and they have repeated that between others. And it was just done for a poetic effect. And it actually works when you look at it and those are inserted in there. It doesn't add or take anything away from Scripture. But because we believe that the Scriptures are inspired, we believe the original manuscripts of Scripture are inspired, and they're not there, and so we're removing them, even though they don't change any meaning. So that's just a bit of a side note for you with the the Scriptures. If you're coming across something like that, there's usually a footnote or something that will explain those things. But back to the text, back to the meat, Jesus is talking about the seriousness of sin here. And it couldn't be more boldly confronted. If you took a look at, the, at these three verses, you're going to see that there's a repetition in structure. There's a, a repetition in, in wording. We see here three times Jesus referring to how uh, members of our body can cause us to sin. He's, he's referring to hands, he's referring to feet, and he's re- referring to eyes. And what he repeats three times is that if any of these members lead us to sin, they should be cut off. They should be torn out. How many people think that's a little extreme? Like if my hand or my feet or my eyes led me to to fall into sin, then I should get rid of them. How many of us would be left with any limbs or eyes? Well, none of us. What we're seeing here is Jesus is teaching hyperbolically, right? He's using an extreme example in order to teach us how serious God takes sin. You know, in the writings of, of Alexander White, he was a Scottish pastor, scholar in the late 1800s. He wrote about a man who was traveling across Canada in the early days of colonization. And it was a bitter, cold winter. And as he's traveling along, he's he's looking to find a place to warm up. And he comes across this log cabin and he he comes close to the door of the cabin. And outside the door of the cabin on the ground is a severed human foot. And as he pushes open the cabin door, he finds a man there with an axe in his hand ready to take off his other foot. This man was suffering. This man just recently found this cabin himself, and his feet were so frostbitten that they had gangrene. And if anybody knows anything about gangrene, it is grotesque, and it is dangerous. It is extremely dangerous dangerous to the rest of your body. This man's feet would have been so infected that it was threatening his life, and so the only hope he had was to cut them off. He had to take radical measures to save his life. Now, I know that's a pretty gruesome illustration, but it just begs the point here. When it comes to sin, we have to take radical measures because it could cost us our lives. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell. Jesus is being hyperbolic here because he has to, because he's serious about sin. He wants to teach the extreme nature of sin, and his seriousness about it as well. Now, this isn't a call for us to go out and dismember our bodies, we know that. It's a metaphor, it's an extreme hyperbolic metaphor, but he's teaching heavenly truth. Hands, feet, and eyes don't cause us to sin, right? It comes from within, if you remember back to Mark 7, we've already walked through Mark 7, verses 20, he said, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him, right? Out of the heart of man comes all of these temptations and sin. When it comes to sin, we can't even blame sin on others. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and he is enticed by his own desire. So Jesus is, is shining a big mirror in the face of his disciples. And he's doing the same for us as well. We need to ask ourselves: To what lengths are we willing to go in order to stop temptation and sin in our life? In John Owen's book, "The Mortification of Sin," he asks the question: Do you mortify? Right? Do you kill? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Just like Jesus already said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What's your soul worth? What's your holiness worth? In the eyes of Christ, it's worth everything. Now on a practical level, this applies to measures that we can take to create distance between us and, and temptation and sin, if you uh, if you recognize certain things in your life uh, that are creating a temptation of your heart away from God, and you find yourself stumbling in the presence of those things, it's worth it to cut them out. To pursue a life of holiness. How about when it comes to lust? How about when it comes to sexual immorality? To what end are you going to go to remove that temptation from your life? Practically, there's filters, there's accountability. Cutting the data off your phone, canceling your internet, killing the TV service. Would that be too extreme? Depending on the severity. Is pornography a gangrene that is killing your heart? Is that too extreme? How about social media? Is it robbing you of joy? Is it stealing the affections away from God? Are you sinfully measuring yourself against others? Are you coveting? Are you gossiping? Are you walking in jealousy? Or are you posting in pride? To what end will we go to practically remove that kind of stuff? from our lives there's apps that can help us with that but again accountability is key that's why in our small groups and in our regroups we're big on accountability we want to be growing in holiness how about consumerism putting all of our hopes and dreams in things that are here wanting more and more and more to what end are we going to go to practice self-control Now, we could go on and on and on, but as helpful as these practical things are to create distance between us and temptation and sin, they're only as good as they are employed, right? They are helpful, but they don't fix the problem. They don't get to the root. If you studied Romans 7, you'd see that the Apostle Paul wrestled with the root of sin, how in his mind he wanted to do what was right, but in his flesh he kept falling back into sin. Romans 7, 22-24, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul wrestled with this, just like you wrestle with this as well. Friends, only Jesus can deliver you from your body of death. It's only through Christ that we can have true victory over our sin. Because Jesus was victorious, perfect, sinless. On the cross, what did Christ say? He said, It is finished. His atonement, which means his work, his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, paid the price so that we can be delivered from our bodies of death. And it's only when you turn away from your sin and you trust in his salvation alone that you could ever have any hope of victory over sin. And then with that, it's as you grow in maturity as well. It doesn't stop at salvation Living a life with Christ, following him, is turning away from sin the rest of the days of our lives. Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit. Right, We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. John says he's tabernacling in us. He's made his home in us in order to strengthen us by his word. To give us strength for the battle of sin. Peter later writes, Once you were, you were not a people, but now you're God's people. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. They wage war against your soul. Friends, it's only because you are God's people and you have his spirit that you can even think of waging war against sin. As we take in God's word, as we put off our old ways, and we put on Christ by his word, by his spirit, God begins to transform us. The spirit begins to produce fruit in us, Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then what? Self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when Jesus is talking about cutting off our members, yes, practical measures are good and helpful, but the radical amputation must take place in the heart. And it's an ongoing work. So we need to take radical measures. We need to get serious with our sin. Now what about this hell that he is talking about. Well, in the first few verses, he's, he's mentioning someone being thrown into the sea. And then in these verses, uh, he's talking about being thrown into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And then in verse 48, he says, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Well, like I already said, Jesus is a hell in brimstone preacher. He teaches it like it is. He doesn't shy away from the truth. And as extreme as his call is to purity and holiness, what he's revealing about hell here is also extreme in our eyes. When it comes to following Christ, when it comes to forsaking sin, we must also understand that God has a righteous justice. We need to be aware of his wrath. Like I've already said, this isn't a popular topic, right? Even within Christianity, people are trying to minimize this, and they're trying to explain it away. Some scholars have even gone so far as to proof text and make hell turn into something else. There's a a famous story about C.S. Lewis and his personal secretary, Walter uh, Hooper. And as it goes Walter and Lewis are walking in a graveyard and they come upon a tombstone and on the tombstone it says, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Now Hooper thought this was really funny, but Lewis didn't share his laughter. Lewis said, I'm sure he wishes now that were true. Hell is a sobering reality for those who don't believe. The atheist is not dressed up and no place to go. There's a place. As much as we struggle with comprehending this, the reality of hell, we have to know that even though we can't comprehend it, we have to apprehend this because we see it in Scripture. It's been revealed to us, right? We're not to be operating on our fears and our desires. We have to understand truth as God has revealed it. The word being translated hell here is the Hebrew word Gehenna. It appears 12 times in the New Testament. 11 out of those 12 times, Jesus is the one using it. 11 out of the 12 times, it's used to speak of eternal torment. Back in the Old Testament, Gehenna is the name that was given to the Valley of Hinnom. It was a valley just outside of Jerusalem where people used to sacrifice their children to the god Molech. If you remember King Ahaz and King Manasseh, both of them sacrificed their children in that valley. It was a horrific valley of death. It was even said that they used to play drums so loud there to drown out the cries of the children who were being killed. But then later, under the godly rule of Josiah he stopped all sacrificing in that valley and they turned it into a garbage dump. So all the Jews would take their waste out there and they would burn it and there would be a constant fire burning in Gehenna. In Isaiah chapter 66, the prophet Isaiah, he's prophesying about the final judgment and the glory of the Lord in heaven. And he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. He's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth and all those who are his coming and worshiping him. Then he says in verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is the scripture that Jesus was quoting. And he's speaking it to his disciples. He's referring to the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And so as we see that in the original text, we see that it's referring to a place of eternal torment. Torment. Jesus is speaking greater than a valley here, greater than a garbage dump. He's speaking of the righteous judgment of God to come. It's real. Friends, hell is not where Satan and his demons live. It's not the place where sinners are going to go party forever. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, Matthew 25, verse 41, says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what we're seeing is this is an eternal place. It's a place of final righteous justice forever. It's the place where the worm shall not die. That's eternal. And the fire is not quenched. That's judgment. Now, when it comes to a doctrine of hell, we can go to all kinds of other scriptures to build a case for a full orb doctrine. We don't have that kind of time here this morning. But for the purpose of this context, what we need to feel is the weight here the weight. We need to understand the seriousness that God has over sin. Hell is God's eternal outpouring of his wrath for sin. That's how serious he takes it. He is a just and righteous God and he must judge sin. This is a sobering admonition for the disciples regarding sin. It should be a sobering admonition for us as well. We shouldn't be ashamed of this. This is the truth. This all falls within the perfect and right will of God. Now I know it's hard for us to understand this and even accept this at times, especially when we're thinking of loved ones, friends, unbelievers who have gone before us, those who aren't believers, those who aren't Christ's disciples. I get it. I feel it. Knowing the reality of hell. But we don't operate off our thoughts and our desires. We have love for them. And sometimes our love for them may lead us even to question this reality. Even questioning God, questioning his goodness and his fairness. You see, our our fallen minds have a hard time grasping the things of God, but we're not called to trust our own thinking, right? We're called to trust the Word of God. We're not called to operate on our own wisdom. We're called to know that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, His ways are higher than our ways, declares the Lord. God is a God of mercy, God is a God of love and a God of grace. And this revelation of hell reveals our desperate state apart from him. When we have a right understanding of the nature of man, the nature of God, the nature of sin, then we rightly understand how great God is, how high and holy he is. But we're sinners through and through. That's the way that we are born. We've inherited this from Adam and Eve. All of us are deserving of eternal death. In fact, none of us deserve heaven. The problem is that by and large, we don't think that we deserve hell, right? In our natural state, we don't think that we deserve it. But we have no problem thinking that others deserve it. When we think of Hitler or Serial killers or pedophiles? We have no problem thinking that they deserve hell. Friends, one sin committed in the garden against a holy God brought death and judgment into the world. One sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that one sin committed by you against a holy and righteous God is worthy of eternal? Punishment. David did. In Psalm 51, we read that this morning. David comes to God broken over his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And When he comes to God in that Psalm, what does he confess? He confesses against you, God. Against you alone have I sinned. Even though we struggle with this, one day we're going to understand this fully. In fact, after the final judgment, there's not going to be a bone in our body that's going to second-guess God in his righteous justice. Revelation 19, 1-2 gives us insight into how we are going to view this. After the the judgment of Babylon, Revelation 19, 1-2, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That's us. That's the angels with us. A loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. Because God is holy and just, hell is necessary and right. And even in this, we can take comfort right now as we look onto this evil world and we see the atrocities. God's going to have the final say. God's going to bring justice. That's a comfort for us right now in this. It's going to be taken care of. It also informs forgiveness. Our forgiveness should be that much sweeter knowing how horrible hell is going to be, what we've been saved from. This should also be informing our feet all the more. We should be swifter with the gospel One of the most loving things that you can share with somebody is the reality of hell. That God is holy and righteous, and he will have justice. But because he's a God of grace and mercy, you can be saved. True discipleship understands that God has a righteous justice. And we need to be aware of his wrath. So true disciples need a right approach, a radical measure, and a righteous justice. And as we close into verse 49 to 50, true discipleship believes in a restored peace. We need to be salty in our salvation. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Fire. This is uh, somewhat of a hard saying to understand uh, in the Scripture, but back to the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, specifically meat and grain sacrifices, would be salted before they were burnt. And what's really going on here is it's speaking of the life of a disciple being a life of sacrifice, continual sacrifice and devotion. Being salted with fire is looking forward to the days ahead and understanding that persecution is going to come Trials are going to come, sacrifice, it's a life of sacrifice. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt in the time of Christ was, yes, it was a flavor for food, but even more than that, it was a preservative. Now, this is long before the days of refrigeration. You would have to salt food, salt meat in order to cure it, to preserve it so that it could last and it can be useful. It can be good so it doesn't spoil. To be salty in our salvation is to be a source of hope for the world. It's to be a source of joy and goodness in a dark and disastrous world. As the world watches us, as the world watches what we say and what we do, and as it watches true disciples walking through adversity, this speaks volumes to them. Remember, the gospel is played out in words, but our lives have also to back that up. Our lives verify what we believe. Is what this saying? is what this person saying really true? Well, you can see that in their lives. And as salt is flavorful and as salt preserves, it is attractive. It is flavorful. Our lives that are backing up our message are attractive to the world. They know that we're not hypocrites, they know that we don't just say something and do something else. They see that as we walk through hard things, we're giving glory to God. We understand Him in His sovereignty, we understand Him as good. We still love joy, we still have satisfaction in Him. As they see that, they're like, what? "What's going on with these people?" They love the Lord. They're salty. We don't attract the world with fancy techniques or short-selling the truth. We attract the world to the kingdom of God through the gospel we share, backed up by a transformed, salty life. That no matter what comes our way, we don't lose our flavor that we have persevering joy in Jesus Christ. And this will lead to peace. Peace among ourselves. Peace among each other. That makes me think of Acts 2, uh, 47. As the, the, the first church was gathering together, they had favor among the people. People seen that they were changing and they were attracted to them. And so we need to ask ourselves: Are we living a salty life? Are we are we sharing the greatest news that can never be shared? And are we walking with the right approach, like we've already said? Are we taking radical measures against our sin, living lives of, of holiness? Are we are we proclaiming a righteous justice with our gospel? And are we walking in restored peace with one another? and with the world around us. A greater view of sin and a greater view of hell equals a greater view of salvation and a greater love for our Savior. And so in the power of the Spirit, as we're motivated by grace, as we see this in God's Word, as genuine followers of Christ, may we be forsaking our sins and fearing God. Let's be careful how we influence. Let's get serious with our sin. Let's be aware of God's wrath and let's be salty in our salvation and then let's watch the Lord do great things, building his church, extending his kingdom, bringing glory to his name because he is worthy. Let's pray.